46 this morning, Psalm 46, one of the more well-known Psalms in the book of Psalms. Someone said to me last Sunday, Pastor, I, I doubt anyone seated in the uh, sanctuary last Sunday had ever heard a sermon from Psalm 45, that perhaps is true. Likewise, the reverse of, of that is potentially true for this morning. Maybe many of us have heard a sermon on Psalm 46. It's one of the more well-known psalms for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is uh, the hymn that has been popularized by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. This text stands, as we've already noted this morning, a foundation for that incredible hymn. The Reformation was not only a reformation of Scripture in the life of the church, The Reformation was also a reformation of singing in the life of the church. The church had stopped singing for many, 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 many years, and part of Martin Luther's passion in the Reformation was also to bring about singing once again in the life of the church. And so he penned, the mighty fortress is our God, and as Pastor Laramie noted before we sang that this morning, became a rallying cry, the hymn, if you will, of the Reformation. And here in Psalm 46, the psalmist reminds us that believers, that's you and me, demonstrate their faith in God. Believers demonstrate their faith in God when we boldly communicate our faith in God during difficulty, knowing God is faithful to his word. This psalm is indeed a settled disposition of the psalmist's heart and reflecting on his confidence in God that regardless of the circumstances, God will indeed be faithful to his word and provide for his people. Here in Psalm 46, the first thing we note is in verses one through three, believers express their trust in God when faced with difficulty. We're not exactly sure exactly what difficulty the nation of Israel is facing in this text. I will say to you that a lot of this psalm is reminiscent in terms of language. It's uh, a lot of it reflects from the book of Isaiah. So perhaps what is taking place here in this psalm is a reflection of the Assyrian Assyrians as they invaded the nation of Israel in 701 and came hard after them. And yet even through that incredible period of difficulty and that invasion, the Lord was Israel's sustainer and protector and ultimately Israel prevailed in that great battle. Whatever the setting is, we do know that Israel has been faced with an incredibly difficult situation, yet in the midst of this incredible difficult situation, she expresses incredible hope and faith in God. Notice what she says first, God is indeed our help. Notice how the psalmist reflects on this, God is our refuge and strength. We could translate that as God is our strong refuge, a very present help in times of trouble, or a very well-proved help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not 
fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam with and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is recounting this truth that God and God alone We're having a wonderful recounting of the psalm here. It's wonderful. The psalmist is reminding us that God is indeed our help in the very midst of trouble. Notice uh, the very first phrase here, God is our refuge and strength. If you'll take your uh, worship guides and just notice with me real quickly, a mighty fortress is our God, a mighty fortress is our God. Notice how Martin Luther begins, or the English translation of this begins, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid uh, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Martin Luther, when he originally wrote this line in the second stanza there, our helper, he amid the flood, Martin Luther wrote originally, God is a good defense and weapon. This passage of scripture reminds us that God is not only a good defender of his people, but God also acts on offense for his people. God is not only protecting us and providing for us in the midst of great difficulty or struggles, but God is also actively working on behalf of his people. This is why the, uh, Matthew records for us Jesus' statements that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Not only because God is there protecting and providing being a refuge for his people, God is also actively at war, if you will, on behalf of his people, going after our enemies. God is a good defense and weapon. He protects and he leads us into battle. This word here that God is our helper, a very present help in trouble, this word help is, at least in our English minds, uh, can sometimes connotate a sense of weakness, right? I injure my leg and I can't quite get around. I need somebody to push me in the wheelchair. So the wheelchair becomes a helper. I need the crutches to, to walk on. And we sense or understand in some ways maybe someone uh, or help in the idea of a negative or in the idea of, of weakness. But this is not at all what this psalm is saying. Think of it in terms of the first time we see this in the context of Scripture. Go back to Genesis with me. And in Genesis, God created Adam. Was Adam complete? complete? No. The Lord needed to make for Adam a a helper. Does that mean Adam was weak? Does that mean Eve was weak? No. It meant that Eve was going to do something for Adam that Adam himself could not do for himself. For example, if God had only created males, the story would have ended pretty quickly. 
Eve joins Adam in being a helpmate, a provision to accomplish a task that Adam could not accomplish on his behalf. And this is what the psalmist is reflecting on when he thinks of God being our helper. He is reminding you and me that God will do for his people what his people cannot do for themselves. Friends, the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, you and I are dead in our trespasses and our sins. That it is absolutely impossible for you, for me, for any one of us to ever have a right relationship with God apart from God's work through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the preeminent example of what a helper is. Jesus does something for you and me that we could not do for ourselves. He appeases the wrath of God toward our sins, and in doing so, he provides atonement that you and I could not accomplish on our behalf. We need the work of Jesus in order for us to have a right relationship with God. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, we are reminded that unless you provide, unless you protect, unless you act on our behalf, we can do absolutely nothing or As John records for us in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What is God doing for you currently in your life that you cannot do for yourself? As you reflect on the sovereignty of God, as you reflect on the goodness of God, are you living your life on a daily basis with this overwhelming sense that God is at this very moment, right now, in a real way, our weapon and defense, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know what the psalmist is reminding us here? A very present help in trouble. Friends, God is readily accessible. It is true theologically that God is at the same time transcendent and imminent. Transcendent in that he is completely, totally holy other than you and me. Yet he is imminent. He is nearby. He is close by. He is present at this very moment. And notice the reflection of the psalmist. The Lord is this for us, a very present help in times of trouble. Notice the anticipation. Is the anticipation for times of of goodness for times of a lack of trouble, or is the anticipation a time of trouble? The psalmist is reminding us 
that relationship with God is not a life promised to escape hardship in any meaningful way. But it is a reminder to you and me, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is always readily accessible and available to his people. Believers express their faith in God when faced with times of difficulty. Hear the expression of faith and hope and trust in God beginning here in verse two. Therefore, we will not fear. Under what circumstances? Under the most awful circumstances imaginable. Though the earth completely give way, though the earth fails, though the mountains, that image which is most secure, right? When we see mountains, we image in our minds something that is very strong, something that is very secure, something that is immovable. But notice that God's actions, at God's will, even these mountains will be moved into the very heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is reflecting on a period of time in which troubles, it could be said, affect all of us. That, is, that indeed is the testimony of our lives. We are either currently in the middle of a struggle, a trouble, we are headed toward a struggle or a trouble, or we are coming out of a struggle or a trouble. And listen at the imagery that the psalmist uses to reflect on this trouble. We've seen some calamity over the course of the last month in our country. When I read these verses, my first thought was the tragedy of the fall of that condo in Florida, nestled right against the shore, and yet in all of its might and power, it fell. The psalmist paints that type of image for you and me of the frailty of, huma- of, of, of the world juxtaposed to the person of God. He's reminding us that there is nothing that can stand in the way of this all-powerful, almighty God. Yet, hear the declaration of faith or hope in the psalmist's heart. Therefore, we will not fear. This is the settled disposition of the psalmist's heart. Whether he's reflecting on an act of war that has just taken place in which the nation of Israel has been defeated, or she's reflecting on a period of time in which the nation of Israel might indeed be inflicted with great pain again, the psalmist is reminding the people of God that they have absolutely nothing to fear. Why? Because Israel in and of herself was mighty? Well, sometimes. But more often, she was frail. She was weak. Instead of 
And this is exactly what got her in trouble in 701 with the Syrians. Instead of trusting the Lord as her refuge and strength, she decided that her best act of defense would, would be to make a deal with a foreign government to provide a sense of security. And did that work very well for Israel? No. The psalmist is reminding you and me, calling you and me to live our lives with a settled disposition of a strong trust and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the responsibility that we as believers have in boldly declaring our faith and our trust in God. Notice again when the psalmist is calling us to express this faith and trust in God. In times of trouble. Perhaps, friends, no greater declaration of faith in God is exhibited than when we express faith and trust and hope in God when we are facing the most difficult moment or moments in our lives. Sometimes the opposite takes place in our lives. When that moment of difficulty strikes us, it's easy to feel a sense of abandonment by God. In fact, we've seen even this summer, some Psalms express exactly that, right? It is the testimony of the human heart. The psalmist is reminding us of the beauty of declaring the goodness and the greatness and the sufficiency and the power of God when we face extreme difficulty in life. Notice how the psalmist continues to express this faith and hope in God beginning in verse 7. In verses 4 through 7, the psalmist begins to make a shift. Perhaps an argument could even be made that the entirety of this psalm is a reflection on the protection and the provision that God will make for his people in the eschaton, in the end times when Jesus returns. And I'm going to make that argument here in just a few moments for sure from the ending part of this psalm, but perhaps the entirety of the psalm could be reflected upon in that way. But for sure here in verses 4 through 7, the psalmist is reminding the people of God that God himself will provide for them during judgment. If you think back to Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah depicts in Isaiah chapter 8 this calamity of, of the Assyrian invasion against against the nation of Israel. And listen at the words Isaiah uses here in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people have, has refused the waters of Shaloah, or we might know that from the New Testament as Salom, that flowed gently and rejoice over Razan and the son of Ramallah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against the waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. 
and it will rise over its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep into all Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now listen as the psalmist recounts these words here in verses four through seven. And hear the same imagery from Isaiah chapter eight. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist depicts a period of judgment and reminds the nation of Israel, the people of God, that God, during this period of judgment, indeed will be for his people a refuge. And he paints it in this image of, of a river. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, a river is used, or the source of water is used in, in two ways. Number one, it's used as a sign of judgment. And he depicts the incoming army of Assyria as the rising Euphrates, and as it rises and it overflows out of its banks, it causes all of this destruction. And Isaiah 8 is indeed a statement of judgment against the nation of Israel, that this is indeed what God is going to do for her, for her rebellion against the nation of Israel. But Isaiah not only reminds the nation of Israel that there's a river whose banks will overflow and provide judgment, Isaiah also depicts another river. The same river that the psalmist here picks up on. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. When King David first makes his way toward Mount Moriah, upon which the city of David, the city of God, Jerusalem, will be built, he first constructs the city of David along the southern side of Mount Moriah at a very low point. And you can even go today to Jerusalem and go to the city of David and you can see some of those original walls, original construction that were built there to be a means of protection for this city of Jerusalem. But there on Mount Moriah, where David built the city, the nation of Israel would find herself, after a few days of battle, being in big trouble because they were cut off from any water supply. So what takes place during this battle? What takes place during this siege, during Hezekiah's day? Hezekiah tunnels through Mount Moriah, the southern end of Mount Moriah, tunnels through Mount Moriah to the very southern end where the Pool of Siloam is currently located, 
and the water that flows through that tunnel is from Gihon Springs, which is on the west side of Mount Moriah in the city of David. And so now the nation of Israel can be enclosed with inside the walls of the city and they can still have a water supply. I don't care how healthy you are today, if you cut yourself off from water for seven, 14, 21 days, you're not gonna last. And this is what the psalmist is saying. God has provided for his people this spring of water that will never run dry. It will always be available and make glad the city of God. This reflection of making glad the city of God. Who comprises a city? Buildings? No. People. There would be no city if it were not for people. Notice what the psalmist is saying. That God himself is the source of supreme gladness and joy for his people. And God has provided this source of supreme joy and satisfaction for you and me through the person of Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am living water, Jesus says. I am the bread of life. See, Jesus is providing for his people the sustenance they need to make their hearts and their lives glad. But it is also a prophetic fulfillment not only of the ways in which God currently provides for his people, but how God will ultimately provide for his people. This imagery of this water flowing in Jerusalem, making glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, is also a prophetic fulfillment of the promise of God in two places, in Ezekiel and Zechariah. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and in Zechariah chapter 14, we hear the promise of God that when Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom reign upon this earth, that the waters that flow from the, nation, from the city of Jerusalem will flow from the east and to the west. In other words, the imagery is when Jesus Christ comes again to rule and to reign, there will not be one ounce of this earth that is not sustained by his goodness and his greatness and his sovereignty. The question for you and me, on what side of God's judgment will you be? There is judgment coming. Verse six, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Peter reflecting, I think, on this psalm in 2 Peter chapter three, if you wanna look with me just real quickly, in 2 Peter chapter three, picks up on this exact same image as he recounts what God will do when Jesus Christ comes again. In 2 Peter chapter three, beginning in verse five, hear the word of God. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, and how? 
by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perish. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The same word that God used to create, he will also use to bring about ultimate final judgment. The psalmist is reminding that there is only one group of people who will be protected, who will be provided for, who will be made glad for all of eternity by the Messiah when he comes is the people of God. For those who by faith have not trusted in the person of Jesus, this psalm here is not a reflection of good news for you. It's a reflection of damnation. It's a reflection of condemnation. God will indeed be faithful to his word to bring about final eschatological judgment against his creation. The question for you and me this morning is, on what side of that judgment will you find yourself? Will you find yourself on that side of judgment in which God will, through Christ, eternally make your heart glad? Or will you find yourself on the other end of judgment where there is rage, where the, king, where the kingdoms totter, where the Lord through his voice melts the earth. And notice the promise of God, verse seven. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. He recounts that phrase again in verse 11, and I'll withhold my primary exposition of that phrase when we get there. Enough to be said here is God is promising his people in the midst of judgment that he will always be with them. God will provide for his people during judgment. But notice how how he concludes this in verses 8 through 11. God is completely, totally faithful to his word. And this is the promise for you and me as it relates to the future. Look at the call. Come, behold the works of our Lord. There's an invitation here to see the eternal work of God for all of eternity. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Do you hear the promise of the future in this passage? For those who by faith have trusted in God, we can know that God is ultimately going to be faithful to his word. And here again, this psalm begins with a reflection on the book of Isaiah, or at least they share some imagery. Here, Isaiah chapter 2, as he reflects on 
this eternal kingdom of God. Isaiah chapter two, verse four, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah chapter two, verses one through four, become this image that is woven in throughout the remaining portions of Isaiah of this promise of what eternity will look like when Jesus Christ himself returns. And notice this psalm is recounting this same truth. Jesus is going to be faithful to his word, friends. Jesus is indeed coming again. And when Jesus Christ comes again, the earth will be filled completely, totally filled with the peace and the presence of Christ himself. The statements of judgment that he just communicated will cease. God will be with his people, and his people will be with their God, and he will be to them as their God, John says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. This is a statement of great hope for you and me that regardless of our current circumstances, the focus of our hearts should remain on the promise of God's word that Jesus is coming again. Notice how the psalmist calls us to think and reflect in this way. Come, behold, This word behold means to to see. Come see. Come enjoy God's work, the works of of the Lord, how he brought desolation on the earth. The psalmist is recalling us to continually remember all of God's previous acts, for as we reflect on the very character and acts of God, they deepen our faith. Remembering deepens our faith and trust and hope in Jesus, even as we face difficulty at this very moment, even presuming at this moment maybe that God is actually not on our side. The psalmist is inviting you and me into this eternal remembrance, if you will, of the incredible acts and works of the Lord and how he has forever provided for his people. And as we reflect on political chaos, as we reflect maybe on personal chaos, as we reflect on worldwide chaos, verse 9 It's all going to end. Verse 10. And when it does, the psalmist says, we can breathe, if you will, a big sigh of relief. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
Friends, this is the disposition to which God reminds us will be ours for all of eternity. Chaos now, yes. Heartache now, yes. Troubles now, yes. Difficulty now, yes. But aren't you longing for that day where you can simply be still and know that for all of eternity you can enjoy the peace and the presence of the Lord himself. Listen to how Isaiah reflected on this in Isaiah chapter 65. In fact, the majority of the ending of Isaiah is a reflection on this period of time. Therefore, thus says Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you, the enemy of God, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you, the enemy of God, shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you, the enemy of God, shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you, the enemy of God, shall cry out for pain of heart and shall well for breaking of spirit. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever and that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Do you hear the themes of Psalm 46 and this picture of the future of Jesus' reign from Isaiah chapter 65? This is what Jesus will do for his people for all of eternity. Why? Because of the truths mentioned for us in verse 7 and verse 11 and first recounted in verse 3. Listen at verse 3 again. Sorry, verse 1 again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In other words, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel God with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We learn from verse one, uh, restated again here in verse seven and repeated again in verse 11, that God through Jesus is indeed the one who is always with his people and acting on behalf of his people. The Lord is our refuge and strength. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, reflecting on the person of Jesus, Matthew reminds us that there is a name to which Mary and Joseph, Joseph should give their son. They should give him the name Emmanuel. Why? For he is God 
with us. The book of Matthew closes with a promise from Jesus himself. And lo, I am with you always. Do you hear the promise of God here, friend? Do you rest in the truthfulness of this text? That regardless of the chaos that you might be experiencing in your life at this very moment, hear the words of this text and be reminded that God is always with you and always working on your behalf. Are you trusting in this God today? Are you resting in the peace that this God has to offer you today? Are you living your life with this settled disposition and boldly communicating your faith in God even in the midst of difficulty, knowing God is always faithful to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the revelation of yourself. We're reminded this morning of your faithfulness to your people, that you, God, are always acting on our behalf. We ask now, Lord, for those of us who might be struggling at this very moment, who might be struggling in faith, that you would impress the truths of this text deep on our hearts and minds. That we would desire to live our lives with this truth ever present. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on God's word? Do you have this type of faith in God today? As you reflect on faith, maybe you realize this morning that faith is completely absent in your life. That you're not trusting, that you're not believing, that you're not hoping. This text reminds us that it's only through Jesus can this type of peace be present in our hearts and our lives, for Jesus is our help. He has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Would you repent of your sins today and trust in Christ? The scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For those of you who are believers today, as you reflect on your life, Maybe you know there are certain areas where trust is not as prevalent as it should be. Would you confess those now to the Lord and ask him to forgive you? 
as you confess those to the Lord, would you ask him to strengthen you in that way? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. As we stand to sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. As we sing, please feel free to come forward and speak to one of us. We'll be glad to share with you more of what it means to trust in Christ. But you don't have to come down front and talk to one of us. Maybe you just need to turn to a neighbor seated next to you, for there are plenty of people seated around you this morning that know the gospel and will be glad to share that gospel message with you. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text of scripture might indeed be evident in your heart and your life. That you would lead your your life, live your life boldly declaring a trust in God even in the midst of difficulty. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?